This morning there are three readings, all of them good, and so I'm going to preach on them. A little out of order, I'll talk about the golden calf from Exodus, uh, and then the story of the, the parable of the, of the wedding, and the wedding garment and so forth. And then I'll say something about the reading from Philippians, because uh, it has a passage in it that actually was one of my grandfather's favorite in the Bible. But it's an interesting story from a variety of, uh, variety of locations. So let me say something first about Exodus, because this is a passage about leadership, and it's a passage about how uh, in the ancient world the same thing happened that happens now. And that is that when we feel under pressure or stress or anxiety, we want the quick fix. We want to have the problem handled, and we want symptom relief. So the tendency to, to, to understand or believe or be willing to do the hard work, which takes longer, uh, is something we prefer not to do. I mean, I know that when I have symptoms, physical or medical symptoms, and they're very bothersome, and I go to the doctor, I'm thinking, I will take all my money out of the bank and give it to you if you will just fix me this minute. <laughs> right? So it's, it's a natural human uh, inclination. And probably some of it also has to do with the fact that we have uh, the means often to have symptom relief or the quick fix. And so it makes us think that that's something we need to do on a regular basis. Moses is on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. You know, in, in Hebrew, another way to, talk, to describe the, the Ten Commandments are the Ten Words. And this is important because he's there now going to get a physical example of what God has given him in the story uh, about how the people of Israel should comport themselves and what they need to have to guide them. So the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words are what he's working on up there. Um, it, when I was a little kid, my mother took my brother and me to the San Carlos Theater to see the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. <laughs> and Charlton Heston was on the mountain, and a laser beam came down and carved out the Ten Commandments, right? If God has spoken to any of you in that fashion, please see me after I preach this. <laughs> I, I want to know. But mostly God discloses uh, himself in uh, a, a more lengthy process of work. So in any case, he's up there doing this, and Aaron, his big associate, remember the story, M Moses, when he sees the burning bush, uh, God says, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to liberate your people, in so many words. And he said, I can't go back and do that because I have a speech impediment. And he said, well, don't worry about that because Aaron's going to go with you and he'll do your talking for you. So Aaron is down. He's not up on the mountain and he's receiving a lot of pushback, a lot of pressure, a lot of anxiety. <clears throat> Uh, a lot of uh, misplaced nostalgia, a lot of looking back uh, at the slavery in Egypt with, in a favorable sense. 
the old ways we have. And uh, he finally said, I can't, I can't stand this anymore. I'll let these people have what they want. They want something to worship. They want a tangible thing uh, to worship that's reminiscent of the gods that they knew uh, back then or back now. And so he collects all their gold jewelry. They melt it down. They make a golden calf. And they worship the golden calf. And things seem to be better, except that God is mightily angry about this. And he tells Moses on the mountain, you need to go down there right now and you need to take care of this. I'm so angry, I want to destroy these people. Stiff-necked people. I love that word, stiff-necked. So Moses pleads with God and he said, please don't uh, do this. Look at the great history of how you've treated people with mercy and justice. And to do this would be to just reverse everything in a way that is, that is wrong. So here's two lessons that the early uh, Christian church learned from reading this text. One of them is that God is faithful and can change his mind. Most of us, if you want to believe in the, the, the sovereignty of God, it isn't a question of there being... I've had very conservative Episcopalians, some of whom have now uh, separated themselves from the Episcopal Church. Actually, you know, in the main, that is a great relief. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, some of my Roman Catholic clergy friends that I've had over the years have said they're, they're not best pleased about the fact that a number of years ago the Roman Catholic Church allowed married Episcopal priests to be received into the Roman Church and exercise their priesthood as married people. And I can tell you that if I was a, a Roman Catholic priest who dotted the I's and crossed the T's, I'd be upset too. <laughs> so I, uh, I said to a couple of them when I was speaking about a couple of years ago, I said, you can have them. They make Pius IX look like a screaming liberal. <laughs> you know, Pio Nono was, he's, he's way back in 1870, the infallibility of the Pope, the First Vatican Council. In any case, uh, God relents because Moses places himself between the people and God as a mediator. And so the early Christian church, when they read this passage from the Hebrew Bible, uh, understood Moses and his behavior to be a type for Jesus, who through his ministry and his death and his resurrection reconciled the world to God. So it is a type in, in, the, great, in the great narrative of the biblical tradition that helps us see and understand that. But it's all of it, all of also a thing, because we don't get into this section of it. Aaron caved. And so what he's now got to do is to, to reverse the consequences of his weakness of leadership. And so one of the characteristics of Moses is always the ability to defocus the people of Israel on one thing and to refocus them on another thing. 
And for, for this wandering in the wilderness, it always has to do with turning their gaze from the place of remembered good times to the place where they will receive a new self-definition and a deeper and fuller understanding of God's will and purpose for them. I went to my 50th high school reunion last night in San Mateo, and I saw a lot of old friends. I'm very lucky because uh, a large number of people that I graduated from high school with I've known since I was five. So I've gone all through school with some of the same people, right? So, so, you, so you see people that you haven't seen in 30 years or with the last high school reunion, if you went. And some of them have uh, done remarkable things, and others still believe that their high school years were the best, right? And they have surpassed anything that in future they have experienced in their life. So the juxtaposition between people who are now one of my friends, old friends, uh, worked for General Motors for years. He was an automotive engineer, and he worked here in Fremont, and then he went back to Detroit, and he worked in Detroit, and he retired, and now he spends his entire time doing prison ministry and working with people who can't read in Detroit and helping to make Detroit uh, come back. You know, I thought to myself, this is pretty righteous work, you know? And I can remember when I was about uh, 12 or 13, uh, he, somebody gave me a go-kart engine as a present for Christmas, and it was all, it was a kit. So you had to put it together. You had to put the engine together. And I've never been a kind of a car guy or anything like that. But Bob Burnham said, bring it over to my house. <laughs> and we put this baby together, and we clamped it onto the bench, and <laughs> it worked. And that was my final triumph with working with engines. <laughs> but it's the place of remembered good times to the future, and some people have refocused themselves in that sense. This is what this is about, and we're going to read some more about this uh, as we move forward in the next couple of weeks, the importance of how that is. So in man, I don't know, uh, you know, most of the time, including your clergy, will sit there in church and they'll listen to the lessons being read and they start to wool gather and they can't remember what they heard or they get about 10%, you know, and they have no idea what it's about from cold, right? And this is not a criticism. It's just merely the way uh, we're constructed, I think. So this is an example, if you do listen or things jump out at you, what you have is this. You have the par two parables that have been stuck together. They're actually separate. So being a student of the Bible and having a smattering of knowledge about how the thing got put together, you'll see that Matthew engaged in some form of an editorial process. And what he did was he reproduced a parable, the beginning, in its entirety. Verses 1 through 10, I think. And then 10 through 14 is another parable that was tacked onto it. So the first parable starts and it goes to about verse 10. And it's a parable about God's inclusiveness. It's a parable about, for Matthew, the welcoming of the Gentile community into the community of faith. And then the last four verses is 
about a guy who just was picked off the streets and he was brought into the celebration of the wedding and because they just dragged him in there, he had no wedding garment to wear. And the king was furious. And the king threw him out. And I'm always reading this and thinking to myself, wait a minute, if we've just heard about God's inclusiveness here through the Savior's work, what are we doing throwing this guy out into the streets when he's really an innocent? He just came in there and was going to do this. Well, the reason for this is the first parable is its own thing. And it is about God's inclusiveness. And we don't know how the next parable began. We don't have the introduction, right? So why is his thrown out for this? Well, Matthew has redacted this in order to say, well, we're welcoming the Gentile community in here, but they've got to dot the I's and cross the T's. So if you don't have a wedding garment on, it's symbolic of how much should you be obedient to with regard to the law. So these two things are juxtaposed together and they have some benefit because it's to do with the fact that uh, inclusiveness in the community that Matthew was writing his gospel, there was a controversy. And the controversy was some, the synagogue that he ran was the pastor of, in all probability, a Christian synagogue, was now 80% Gentile. So the Jews, Matthew and the other Jewish Christians, we're beginning to say, we believe in God's inclusiveness, but these people have got to, you know, toe some line. You know, I mean, you've got to do this. Don't be so easygoing. That, and I think that this war has been part of the Christian life from the jump. And I'm not necessarily convinced that it's a bad thing, because it's an example of the fact that we have to continue the conversation about what this means. Because all of us, particularly those of us uh, who, who have been pastors for a long time, realize what is the demand that must exist on people uh, understanding in depth what it is that Christianity believes and teaches. And so there maybe has to be some kind of way in which we understand that. And at the same time, keep always in mind about God's unconditional offer to everybody. To everybody. So this is sort of a cautionary note about all of that. Um, I never used to understand how that made any sense. Reginald Fuller, um, in responding to these two parables being uh, put together, he says, it is difficult to be certain. It seems likely that the evangelist was responsible for combining the two parables. He interprets the gathering, g- gathering in the ragtag and bobtail from the streets allegorically as Jesus' redaction of the subsequent Gentile mission. In other words, prior to this, if this is an authentic saying of Jesus in the parable, it has something to do with how he's using this for the purpose of understanding that the Gentiles need to come in before they got to what Matthew was experiencing with a synagogue with 80% uh, Gentiles and adds the second parable as a warning against their admission on two easy terms. So that, that's the tension that exists that's being laid out uh, for us in the biblical witness. 
But since those things represent controversy, anxiousness and reactivity in the face of, or the non-anxiousness in the face of the reactivity and anxiousness of other people, Aaron, controversy within the community, and then the wedding garment situation where some apparent innocent is being thrown out in the art, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's an image for you. Some of the Renaissance artists wrote a lot about it. <laughs> Weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's about the conversation within the community. So today we have Paul in Philippians writing to Iodia and Syntyche. If you read this in the Greek, the original Greek text, the, the person's name, Iodia, is just that, a woman. And Syntyche is a woman. But in the authorized version, the King James Version, it's Iodias, <laughs> right? A man. So then we develop a big tradition about the fact that they're a husband and wife team, of pastors in Philippi. Well, as Father Hunt used to tell us, you can believe that if you want to. Because <laughs> there's no textual support for that. So what this means is that in the Philippian community, there was female leadership in the community. Okay? And they were uh, having a dispute with one another about certain aspects of the way in which things ought to be done. And we, we must remember that the Philippian community is probably one of the healthiest congregations that Paul founded. They were some of the most generous people in giving to him for the collection that he was taking up to take back to Jerusalem. They, they had a, a, a minimum of the difficulties that, say, Corinth had, which was, as I say every time, on the bleeding edge of the dysfunctional church movement, Right? So, so they were people who were uh, pretty agreeable, but they had some sort of a controversy, and he addresses them directly for the purpose of, for acknowledging that their controversy is important because they're part of the leadership. And he goes on to say in the, towards the end of this, Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That was one of my grandfather's favorite passages in the Bible, in the New Testament. Think about these things. Well, Paul... Uh, you know, was a Hellenized Greek. He lived in the diaspora, and he understood the Greek world, the Greek thought world. And this list that he wrote here was not something that he thought up. It wasn't a Christian list, unique. It was a list you can read in Greek Stoic philosophy. It would have been, put this on your refrigerator... And when you're thinking thoughts, look at it, okay? It's a list that comes from the Stoics, from Stoic philosophy. And Paul's letters are replete with examples of this. 
And one of the reasons he does this is that the people he's writing to knew that too. It was part of how they understood reality and what it was like. Part of the credibility of Christianity isn't just that it's so out of this world that it seems incredible. It's that the things that are mentioned and described in the writings other places besides miraculous events and all of these things, which were not a problem then either, is that they said, well, this fits with how I see things. It's not just so, out, you know, Jesus wasn't just a screwball who was God-obsessed. He fit in in a way that was understandable by the people that heard him and saw him. So that's important. And Paul describes this here and thinks uh, this is important to commend to people. And also what he's saying in, in so many words, in my view, looking at it now a long time afterwards, is that he is describing things in this way to say to people, don't think always of Christian behavior as something religious. Think of it as the reflection back to the world of the highest and best of our human image, made in the image and likeness of God. So that when you use this kind of terminology, you're really describing what the early disciples saw in Jesus, somebody who had achieved the highest of their human potentiality and was both fully human and fully divine. And they said to themselves, this is something we can do, you know, it's something that's important uh, in that sense. So this week, think about, the. I talk endlessly about this, about non-anxiousness in the face of others who are very anxious and putting pressure. You know, Nancy and I are kind of news junkies, so we're always watching cable news. And we watch all this stuff, and I begin to think after a while, as much as I'm interested in this and feel that I have the absolute pressure to keep current, <laughs> uh, the news cycle is such now that people are inflating events and circumstances to the point where it is, uh, it's incredible to listen to this kind of thing because it does nothing but ratchet up people's anxiety. It does not give us time to do the hard work. It does not give us time to be reflective. It does not give us the time uh, to just step back and look at this uh, from some distance. And this is not unique to our age, even though there are aspects of, of our age that are, that haven't occurred before in the same way. So being non-anxious is an important thing in, in many ways, particularly, uh, well, in any circumstance. And uh, see if there are opportunities this week to uh, uh, focus on what is honorable, just, pure, pleasing, and commendable. Those are areas, by the way, uh, that probably um, Houston Smith in his interview with Bill Moyers would say, these are signs that if you're finding this easier to do or to reflect back, you might say, with all humility and without shouting it from the housetops, that this is a sign of some spiritual progress in your life. And that's a good thing. Amen. Amen.